Welcome to the Sand Hills Media Ministry. We hope this production encourages and challenges you to live a more Christ-centered life. Oh, it's so great to see all of you. How are we doing this morning? Excellent. I feel like this is the right way to come and preach a message when you're wet with the water of baptism on you. Amen? Yeah, it's great. What a beautiful picture. People have been transformed by Jesus Christ. And for some of us who've been Christians for a long time, you know, we get a little bit jaded. We forget that God is with us and moving. It's such a beautiful thing to see people publicly proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for him. Amen? All right. Uh, before we get into the message this morning, uh, one thing I want to talk about is recently we had a bylaw change, and during that we had a town hall meeting, and we would ask people after services if they had any questions, they could come up and talk to us. And so I had a lot of conversations both at the front of the church after the service and out in the foyer, and I realized that for some people, maybe the vote didn't go the way they wanted to, they had more questions, they weren't satisfied with some of the discussions that we had about things. And the pastors and elders would really love and invite you, if you do have those questions, if you do feel unsatisfied with some of those things, we wanna meet with you. We love you, we're a family, uh, we wanna settle those things and go before the word of God together. All right, so we are in 1 Samuel chapter 10, if you wanna swipe there in your Bibles. And uh, we're gonna go verse by verse through 27 verses of 1 Samuel chapter 10. And I know it sounds like a lot, but that's what I've been commissioned to do, so here we are. And uh, we're gonna do this verse by verse. We believe this is so important at Sandhills Community Church, and this is called expositional preaching. Uh, sometimes we do topical messages, but mostly Pastor Jeff stays in doing verse by verse messages. And that's because we believe it's vitally important to ha understand the whole counsel of God. And so there's some weird and wonderful things that you encounter when you do a verse-by-verse -verse study of the Bible. You're gonna see that this morning. Uh, that's gonna be exciting to see that. Um, and there are things that you would never encounter if you just talked, talked topically about the Bible. All right, 1 Samuel chapter 10. Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on Saul's head, kissed him and said, hasn't the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? Today when you leave me, you will find two men at Rachel's grave at Zelazah in the territory of Benjamin. They will say to you, the donkeys you went looking for have been found and now your father has stopped being concerned about the donkeys and is worried about you asking, what should I do about my son? You then will proceed from there until you come to the Oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Beth will meet you there, one bringing three goats, one bringing three loaves of bread, and one bringing a clay jar of wine. They will ask how you are and give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. After that, you will come to Gibeah of God, where there are Philistine garrisons. When you arrive at the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place prophesying. They will be preceded by harps, tambourines, flutes, and lyres. The Spirit of the Lord will come powerfully on you. You will prophesy with them, and you will be transformed. When these signs have happened to you, do whatever your circumstances require, because God is with you. Afterward, go ahead of me to Gilgal. I will come to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice fellowship offerings. Wait seven days until I come to you and show you what to do. And when Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed his heart, and all the signs came about that day. 
When Saul and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a group of prophets met him. Then the Spirit of God came powerfully on him, and he prophesied along with them. Everyone who knew him previously and saw him prophesy with the prophets asked each other, what has happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? That a man who was from there asked, and who was their father? As a result, is Saul among the prophets became a popular saying. And Saul finished prophesying and went to the high place. Saul's uncle asked him and a servant, where did you go? To look for the donkey, Saul answered. And when we saw that they weren't there, we went to Samuel. Tell me, Saul's uncle asked, what did Samuel say to you? And Saul told him, he assured us the donkeys had been found. However, Saul did not tell what Samuel had said about the matter of kingship. Samuel summoned the people to the Lord at Mizpah and said to the Israelites, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, I brought Israel out of Egypt and I rescued you from the power of the Egyptians and all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all of your troubles and afflictions. You said to him, you must set a king over us. Now therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans. Samuel had all the tribes of Israel come forward and the tribe of Benjamin was selected. Then he had the tribe of Benjamin come forward by its clans and the Maturite clan was selected. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was selected. But when they searched for him, they couldn't find him. They again inquired of the Lord, has the man come here yet? And the Lord replied, there he is, hidden among the supplies. And they ran and got him from there. And when he stood among the people, he stood a head taller than anyone else. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see the one the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among the entire population. And all the people shouted, long live the king. Samuel proclaimed to the people the rights of kingship. He wrote them on a scroll, which he placed in the presence of the Lord. And Samuel sent all the people home. Saul also went to his home in Gibeah, and brave men whose hearts had touched went with him. But some wicked men said, how can this guy save us? They despised him and did not bring him a gift, but Saul said nothing. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, it's such an incredible privilege to stand in your presence and to know that because your spirit dwells within us. Your presence is always with us, whether we feel it emotionally or not. Uh, you've saved us and rescued us. We pray this morning that you would open our minds to your word that we might understand it. And that it would change us and transform us, that we would know the living God in a more intimate and deeper way as we look into what you've communicated to us and to the world for generations and generations. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So before we get right into the text, I want to talk about context for a second. And you'll notice that I read this whole long passage to you, and I did that on purpose. It's because we need to understand what's going on. We need to hear like big chunks of the whole story. And so we talk about context. We think about that. We also think about how does the grammar work and who the author is and what's the historical setting. And all that's critically important for understanding what the scripture says. But what's really cool is that God has even a larger context to all of these things. And so despite the fact that this Bible has been written over 1,500 years with 40 some odd different authors in three different languages, there is one unified story about God's plan and progress for redemption. And at the center of all of that is who? Amen, that's right, it is. Jesus is at the center of that. 
And so we see in Luke 24, 27, uh, in the Gospels, Jesus has died and risen from the dead, and he's walking with some disciples, the raid of Emmaus. They don't know who he is, and he says, in beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. So Jesus himself indicates that there's so much in the Old Testament, and it's really centrally all about him. And that's a beautiful thing for us who call Christ our Savior. So there's a larger context to this. And in the book of Samuel, something really cool has happened that God has done and how he structured this whole thing. First of all, we know that First and Second Samuel originally were one book, right? And so there's one unified story in it. And the cool thing is, is that if you remember in chapter two of Samuel, we see this woman come on the scenes and she is barren and yet miraculously she is given a son and that son is Samuel. She dedicates him to the service of the Lord in the temple and he's the Samuel that becomes a great prophet. But it's recorded in Holy Scripture forever her prayer, which is an amazing thing. Can you imagine being a mom and your prayer was recorded in scripture. And in that prayer, what we see is all the themes laid out that we'll see again and again in the book of Samuel. And essentially, if you boil it down, there are three themes that you see repeated. One is that God opposes the proud and exalts the humble. The second one is despite human evil and all the crazy, stupid mistakes we make, even as God's people, God is still at work as a good and kind father. And finally, the promise of a messianic king. And so in her beautiful prayer, she says right at the very end in 1 Samuel 2.10, those who oppose the Lord will be shattered. He will thunder in the heavens against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give power to his king. He will lift up the horn of his anointed. And so in the middle of this prayer is this prophetic word about a coming king when there were no kings. And so we understand this to be Jesus later on. So this, this is the first part of the introduction of Samuel. And if we follow the story of Samuel, we see it begins about Samuel. And then there's this transfer, transfer of leadership from Samuel to Saul, and then from Saul to David. But then there's this mysterious king in the background. And if you go to the, near the end of Samuel, 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 13, God meets with David and he says to him, for when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. And so when, when Hannah introduces this coming king, we think as we read Samuel, well, maybe Saul is the guy that answers that prophecy. And then we see as he rises and he declines into sin and selfishness and timidity. Then David is a man after God's own heart. And it must be him that is that coming king that's promised in the prayer of Hannah. But we see here in this verse that it isn't. And God speaks to David through his prophet. And he says to him, no, there's another king that's coming. And Jesus claims that verse for himself. In Luke 1, 30 through 33 we read this, and the angel told Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. And so Jesus is the promised ultimate king that Samuel is talking about. 
So even though we read the story and the story we're gonna read today, it seems like it's all about Saul and kind of what's happening with him, Jesus kind of sits in the background. And I do believe that the, the book of Samuel is given to us so we can really understand what God's version of a king is and what his idea of kingship is. And we see this example and we see how it's offered that this is the best that the world has to say about this and it fails. And ultimately Jesus is the one who fulfills everything that God wants in a king, in a kingdom. Thank you, Mary. And so we see this begins with a private anointing in 1 Samuel chapter uh, 10, verse one. So Samuel took the flask of oil, poured it on Saul's head, kissed him and said, hasn't the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? And so if you remember in the end of chapter nine, we were left with a cliffhanger. Uh, Saul and Samuel have come together and Samuel's told Saul, hey listen, I know that you're concerned about the donkeys and that's why you're coming to see me. And really, God has something to say to you, and like, you're gonna be the next king. And Saul just doesn't have a response to that, except to say, kind of, are you serious? Like, I'm from the smallest tribe, like an unknown people. Is this really? And, and Saul says, yeah. And so we come to the end of chapter nine, and it says, as they were going down to the edge of the city, Samuel said to Saul, tell the servant to go on ahead of us, but stay for a while, and I'll reveal the word of God to you. So the servant went on, and then we see that scene where Samuel takes the flask of oil and pours it on his head. And so this is the expression of the word of God being given to Saul. And it starts with this beautiful act, the ceremonial act of having oil poured on Saul's head. And so what's the significance of that? And maybe you remember Jesus being anointed by different people uh, in the gospels. But at this point in history, the only people who've ever been anointed with oil for God's service, have been the priests. In fact, the Bible takes anointing very seriously. If you go back to Exodus 30, verses 22 through 33, it talks about this in anointing. And initially, it gives us all of these instructions about how it's to be prepared. And then in verse 26 of Exodus 30, it says, I want you to anoint the tent of meeting, the ark of testimony, a table with all its utensils, a lampstand with its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin with its stand. Consecrate them and they will be especially holy. Whoever touches them will be consecrated. Anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them to serve me as priests. Tell the Israelites they will be my holy anointing throughout all generations. It must, must not be used for ordinary anointing on a person's body and you must not make anything like it using its formula. It is holy and it must be holy to you. Anyone who blends something like it or puts some of it on an authorized, unauthorized person must be cut off from his people. And so this act, even though physically and literally what it means is just being smeared with oil and oil being put on you, it actually represents a much deeper spiritual truth in that you, that anointing means chosen and empowered by God for a specific holy purpose. And so we saw that of the priests, we see that of Saul. Later on, we'll see that of David, and he's anointed and commissioned similar to Saul. In 1 Samuel 16, 13, it says, so Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers, and the spirit of the Lord came powerfully on David from that day forward. And Samuel set out and went to Ramah. And so the Holy Spirit is the real anointing that people receive, and it's symbolic when they're anointed with oil in this office of king and priest. 
So king, priests, and later on we'll see that prophets are anointed with oil to symbolize that more profound spiritual reality that God's presence in his favor was with them. And then we know that Jesus was anointed as king. So Luke 4.18 says, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind to set free the oppressed. So prophets, priests, and kings, and Jesus himself as the ultimate prophet, priest, and king has been anointed by God. That's pretty exalted company, wouldn't you say? But what does he say about you as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? You are chosen and empowered by God for a specific holy purpose. 1 John 2.20 says, but you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. 1 Peter 2.9 describes us this way. But you are a chosen, chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you stand in the company of the kings, the prophets, and the priests of the Old Testament. Those people we saw fantastic, miraculous things happen. And all of that was to give us an image of a future anointing of God's people and what that would ultimately mean. And now God's spirit is on you so that you can proclaim the greatness of who God is to the whole world. Now, maybe you're like me, and my life isn't completely about God in every way that I want it to be. And I often think about what Paul said in Philippians 1.21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that just blows my mind about that he had come to that place in his spiritual journey. But ultimately, it shows us the whole purpose of our life. God didn't empower us and save us just to rescue us from an uncomfortable lifestyle, the sins or the bad choices that we made. You are chosen, you are empowered for a holy purpose, and that's to be his servant, to proclaim to the world the greatness of who God is. A couple of other things we see in verse one is that when Samuel pours the oil on his head, he kisses him. Now in the culture today, they may think weird things about this, but what it actually meant back then, and this is the man of God. Everybody recognizes Samuel as the spokesman and the seer of God. Saul knows that himself, and so he kisses him saying, hey, you have my approval in this process. Hasn't the Lord anointed you ruler over his inheritance? And even though he's just told him, listen, you're gonna be king. God has chosen you to be king. I'm anointing you as king. It's really God's inheritance. And he chooses to use the word ruler instead of king. And it, it's kind of a subordinate word to king. And so there's this idea that, yes, you're king, but there's a greater king. And you are ultimately responsible to him. And this kingdom does not belong to you. It's really his. And so you're the steward of this. In fact, your calling, your holy purpose is to go and provide security and significance for them, to rescue them from the Philistines in the name of God, with God in you. All right, verse two introduces uh, three signs, and these signs are given to Saul so that he would understand that this isn't just Samuel saying these things, that this is actually confirmed by God. And so this, he's gonna send them on a treasure hunt, sort of, and he's gonna tell them very specifically what's gonna happen in the future when he arrives at specific places. And so many details are given 
And all of this is intended for us to know that only God could say this and know this and do this. And so it has God's supernatural fingerprints all over it. And it's meant to confirm to Saul that actually God is behind all of this. So what's the first sign? Verse two, today when you leave me, you will find two men at Rachel's grave at Zelzah in the territory of Benjamin. They will say to you, the donkeys you went looking for have been found. And now your father has stopped being concerned about the donkeys and is worried about you, asking, what should I do about my son? And what's cool about this passage is not only is he giving him specific directions, we also see some insight into the relationship between Saul and his father. And it's actually pretty good because his dad is concerned for him. He's been gone for a while. He doesn't really care about the donkeys anymore. He cares about his son. And so Saul has not only the advantage of the anointing of God, he also has the advantage of coming from a family where his father cares about him. All right, second sign. You will proceed from there until you come to the oak of Tabor. Three men going up to God at Bethel will meet you there, one bringing three goats, one bringing three loaves of bread, and one bringing a clay jar of wine. They will ask, how are you, and give you two loaves of bread, which you will accept from them. So what is this all about, and why, why this? Well, one is we have a lot of very specific things. So if Saul showed up, and it was off a little bit, you, may, you might be thinking, well, maybe this isn't really from God. So we have all of that specificity in it, indicating that this is supernatural. But what also is pretty cool is the setting here would be where people are going up to worship and offer sacrifice. And so all of those things listed there would be things that were used in sacrifice. And the offering of the two loaves to somebody would actually be the priest portion of the sacrifice. So it gives you a little hint that maybe this office of king that Saul is going to have also has a priestly element to it where Saul is going to be asked to represent God to the people and the people to God. Third sign, after that you will come to Gibeah of God where the Philistine garrisons are. The Philistines were their enemy at the time. They were on the rise during this whole period. They had giants among them. They had their own people that were head and shoulders above the rest. And so at that place, he says, that's where you're going to go. And when you arrive at the city, you will meet a group of prophets coming down from the high place prophesying. They will be preceded by harps, tambourines, flutes, and lyres. Now this to me looks exactly like a worship service at Santos, because we have all the instruments come out, right? And then they're coming down from the mountain, so there's probably some fog, which could be a smoke machine. And so this is the passage I'm sure that inspires Jack and Sean to do all that they do. I'm just kidding. Uh, this is kind of an unusual scene for back then that they would do this. It's a very public thing. But this is cool because this is, the spirit of the Lord will come powerfully on you and you will prophesy with them and you will be transformed. Amen. And so there's this promise to Saul. said, maybe you don't think you're ready for this, but God is going to equip you. He's going to transform you for this role as king. And he will transform you. And when these signs have happened to you, do whatever your circumstances require because God is with you. So he leaves all of these specific instructions for Saul and he tells them, okay, now you're gonna be in this place. God has empowered you. He's transformed you. Now with wisdom, go and do what you're supposed to do. And God often leaves us in the same position. We don't know his specific will for every moment, but with wisdom, we have our general marching orders to represent God to the world. And so Saul is in this position where he's kind of left to his own devices, being transformed and empowered by God. And behind all of this, there's a little hint from Samuel that, 
hey, you're right near the Philistine garrison, so maybe you can start some early work, maybe, get some guys together and start taking on the Philistines. And so that, that hint is there in that passage. And yet, we don't see him do that yet. He tells him, afterward, go ahead of me to Gilgal. I will come to you to offer burnt offerings and to sacrifice fellowship offerings. Wait seven days until I come to you and show you what to do. So he's been king, he's been given his orders, he's been transformed, he's been told that God is with you, and yet, you still need to wait for the man of God. And so he's being told that despite all of these accolades and power you've been given, you are still to be submissive to the Lord your God and his prophet. When Saul turned to leave Samuel, God changed his heart, and all the signs came about that day, so everything came true. And so the first two signs have taken place, and we don't get any details about that, but we do enter into the actual what happened during that third sign. It said, when Saul and his servant arrived at Gibeah, a group of prophets met him, then the Spirit of God came powerfully on him, and he prophesied along with them. And so prophecy here isn't like when Samuel prophesies and says, thus saith the Lord, and it may not even be predicting the future. It could be people under the inspiration of God's spirit just proclaiming the praises of God. And that came upon Saul, and people saw that. This is now in a public setting where everything had been more private to that point. Because we read in verse 11, everyone who knew him previously and saw him prophesy with the prophets asked each other, what has happened to the son of Kish? And I read it that way because that's what I think how it really was. And they say, is Saul also among the prophets? And it's essentially saying, we've never seen this from this guy. And is he really religious now? Is he really prophesying? Is the spirit of God really come upon him? Because that doesn't seem like the Saul that we know. And then a man who was there from, from there asked, and who is their father? Indicating who is the, probably the leader of the prophets. And what's funny about this, as a result, is Saul among the prophets became a popular saying. And so this made such an impression on the people that Saul could be changed into somebody who's the spirit of God rested upon and is now prophesying that actually became a saying, which I think is pretty cool. I wish that was said about me, but other things are said, unfortunately. <laughs> then Saul finished prophesying and went on to the high place, and Saul's uncle asked him in a servant, where did you go? So the scene shifts a bit forward in time, and he shows up back home, and he runs into his uncle, and we don't know why it's, it's his uncle and not his father. It's probably just the reality of what happened. I said, hey, where did you go? What happened? Oh, I went looking for the donkeys, Saul answered. And when we saw they weren't there, we went to Samuel. Huh, Samuel, that's the man of God, right? Yeah, tell me, Saul's uncle asked, what did Samuel say to you? Oh, he assured us that the donkeys had been found, and that's it. However, Saul did not tell him what Samuel had said about the matter of kingship. And I think that gives us a true glimpse into his personality. And it's kind of contrasted with David and who he becomes when God's word is given to him. I'm gonna see that more explicitly here in a second, and I'm gonna make that contrast a little bit more plain. All right, now we enter the public coronation of Saul. So we went from the private anointing to the public coronation. And so this is where Samuel is going to make it plain to everybody in the tribe of Israel that Saul is indeed the king chosen by God. So we're at verse 17. 
Samuel summoned the people to the Lord at Mizpah. And if you remember, Samuel had previously gathered all the people together at Mizpah for something awful in Judges chapter 20. So they're used to coming here to be gathered as a people. As many people from all of the tribes that could be gathered would be gathered. And he said to the Israelites, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. I brought Israel out of Egypt and I rescued you from the power of the Egyptians and all the kingdoms that were oppressing you. So he's reminding them of the miraculous way that God has led his people, that he has given them security and significance. And then he follows with this statement. And this is in front of all of Israel. But today you have rejected your God who saves you from all your troubles and afflictions. Wow. Can you imagine being Saul and you're about to be introduced? And this is how the man of God says this? Like this is a terrible idea, but this is going to happen anyway. You said to him, you must set us a king over us, and not only a king over us, a king like other nations, a king who has rejected Yahweh. And we looked to the kings of the other nations at that time, and it was all about personal glory and amassing wealth and power for themselves. And Samuel has already warned them, this is what kings do. You must set a king over us. Now, therefore, present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and clans, so this is what you asked for. This is the man you asked for. And then verse 20, Samuel had all the tribes of Israel come forward and the tribe of Benjamin was selected. Then he had the tribe of Benjamin come forward by its clans and the Matrite clan was selected. Finally, Saul, son of Kish, was selected. But when they searched for him, they could not find him. They again inquired of the Lord, has the man come here yet? And so this is interesting. So it looks like no one's seen this guy at all during this huge gathering of people. And he's head and shoulders above the rest. And they have to ask the Lord where he is. And maybe they asked Samuel, and Samuel's replying for the Lord, but we don't know. He might have just spoken out of the heavens with a big finger pointing to where he is. This is terrible that this guy is hiding. It says, there he is, hidden among the supplies. Now, some may say, and some of the commentaries I read said, well, you know, Saul was so humble. He was just such a meek guy. He didn't want to really make this about himself. But the, really the tenor of this, especially when it's compared with David, is that there's generally fear involved in this, but more lack of faith. Because God has called him to a specific purpose to lead his people, and he's hiding. God has called him to be the one that the people rest their hopes on for security and significance. He's hiding. This is a terrible indictment on Saul. What did David say when he had his chance to stand before the enemy? Just as a young man. And he says this, and this is back in 1 Samuel. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? What a contrast between David and Saul and who they were. And I think the contrast is given on purpose. I want to say, I don't know if you can say this exegetically, but I'm going to say it anyway. Sorry, Dr. Williams. Uh, do we hide in our own baggage and avoid the calling that God has for us because we just think it's too much? <laughs> but God is with us. And God doesn't give us this holy purpose to punish us. He gives us so we find joy and fulfillment. And turn to God in faith and believe what he's done in your life. 
We just saw the example of lives saved through baptism. You know that's true in your own life. Don't forget that. Don't listen to the voice of the enemy. Live for faith in Christ and fulfill the promises that he's given you. Verse 23, they ran and got him from there, and when he stood among the people, he stood a hood, uh, head taller than anyone else. And Samuel said to all the people, do you see the one the Lord has chosen? There is no one like him among the entire population. And it might be true at the point, this is the best of what you got. Especially from an outward worldly appearance, this seems to be like the man. And what's interesting, when we go to 1 Samuel 16, and we see that David is being chosen as the one to be the next king, he's a short little guy. And these words, which are familiar to all of us, come from that scene in that passage. Don't look at his appearance or how tall he is because I've rejected him. God does not see as humans see. Humans look at outward appearances, but the Lord looks into the heart. So there's a direct contrast in there where we, in our worldliness, want to elevate the things that the word elevates, the world elevates. But God says you need to look at the heart because that's where the real champions are. And even Hannah is lifted up as a champion early in this book. And her prayer included, and it sets the theme for all of Samuel, is an incredible thing. And if you remember her words that she said about God, she was almost like fierce and knowing this is who our God is, and he's the champion of all things. And so the book of Samuel has this, God opposes the proud but exalts the humble. There's no one like him among the entire population. All the people shouted, long live the king. They did not say that about God. And so when Samuel was giving the history of what God had done for his people, nothing is recorded. But now that we've lifted up somebody's perfect in the eyes of the world as king, long live the king. Samuel proclaimed to the people the rights of kingship. He wrote them on a scroll which he placed in the presence of the Lord, and then Samuel sent all the people home. So what's in that scroll? Well, this is interesting. So I think it could be two things. One is that if you go back to Samuel 8, when people originally came to Samuel and said, hey, we want a king just like the other nations. You're old and your sons are terrible. So it's not working for us, and we need another king. And he says, do you know what kings do? They take your sons and daughters, they take a tenth of everything you own. They take the best of your vineyards, your fields, and they all use it for themselves. They give some of those things to the servant. They take all of your cattle, and they do all of that. And they said, yeah, that's who we want. So maybe Samuel's writing that down for people to remember forever. This is the king you wanted, and here it is, preserved in the presence of God. So maybe that's it. The other option is in Deuteronomy 17, 14 through 20, Moses, long before this had happened, had actually predicted and prophesied that the people would choose a king, and it says this, when you enter the land the Lord your God is giving you, take possession of it, live in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations around me. You are to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses, appoint a king from your brothers. You're not to set a foreigner over you, or one who is not of your people. However, he must not acquire many horses for himself or send the people back to Egypt to acquire many horses. For the Lord has told you, you are never to go back that way again. He must not acquire many wives for himself so his heart won't go astray. He must not acquire very large amounts of silver and gold for himself. When he is seated on his royal throne, he is to copy, to write a copy of this 
instruction for himself on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It is to remain with him and he is to read from it all the days of his life so that he may learn to fear the Lord his God, to observe all the words of his instruction and to do these statutes. And so maybe that's what he's writing down. We don't know, but it could be one of those two things. But it's preserving what God has said about kings and kingship for them to be reminded of for the rest of their lives. Then all the people were sent home by Samuel. In verse 26, Saul also went home to his home in Gibeah, and brave men whose hearts God had touched went with him, which is a great thing. So people were inspired by this call to kingship. Like, yeah, we've got a guy who's gonna fight for us. We have our own version of Goliath, a huge giant that God has chosen. But some wicked men said, how can this guy save us? And maybe they're thinking back to the whole baggage incident where God had to tell him where this guy was because nobody could find him. That is hidden so well. And they despised him and did not bring him a gift. And this is interesting because Saul said nothing. I don't think David would have said nothing. What do you think? Right. And so you see that Saul has been given all of these advantages. And I think this is the first lesson we can learn from this passage this morning. God's people need to be careful about looking to the world for the security and significance. Saul started with great promise. He was chosen, anointed by God. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, supported by a great man of God, given gifts appropriate to royalty, enthusiastically supported by most of the nation, surrounded by valiant men whose hearts God had touched and may be wise enough to not regard every critic as an enemy. And despite all of these great advantages, Saul still ended badly. He chose to use all of those advantages ultimately for his own selfish purposes. And we see in all these opportunities, he never at this point stood up for God. He was more concerned about his glory than God's glory, and he failed in his calling to bring security and significance to God's people. And I wonder how often politically and otherwise when we're in real distress in reality, we follow the ways of the world because we lost faith in what God can do. I pray they just wanna be us as his people. The Bible gives us that example of do not do that as God's people. Second lesson learned, God is with you. As people who have trusted in Christ as the Lord and Savior, as people who have a personal relationship with Jesus, that's you. These words should move you maybe more than any of the words in the Bible. They should move you because you understand that when you trusted in Christ, you were anointed by God and given his spirit. And because of that indwelling spirit, you have the very presence of God within you, the presence that has sealed and strengthened you, the presence that is sanctifying, training, and transforming you, the presence that has set you free and is preparing a place for you in paradise with our God forever. Let's pray. I'm gonna read some scripture to us about God being with us. I just want you to prayerfully meditate on them. Isaiah 41.10 says, Fear not, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Joshua 1.9, Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Deuteronomy 31.6, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them, for it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Zephaniah 3.17, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you with his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. 
Matthew 28, 20. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. John 14, 16 through 17. I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The spirit of truth, the world cannot accept him because it neither sees him or knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. Romans 8.31, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Romans 8.37 through 39, no. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. This morning, we proclaim you, Jesus, as our King. We pray that you would give us the strength by your Spirit to live for you, to put away the values of the world, and to proclaim your greatness to everyone. Amen.